Hey everyone and welcome to a brand new Digital Foundry Direct Weekly. It's the 20th one. Somehow we've managed to talk nonsense over 20 episodes now. And uh, yes, this is our weekly discussion show where we talk about the latest tech news, discuss what we're doing, uh, go behind the scenes with some of the stuff we're doing on the DF Supporter Programme. And yes, of course, we take uh, supporter questions and answers. Um, so, joining me on this particular episode, first of all, it is Tom Morgan. Hello. Oh, hi. I go first. <laughs> yes. All the way from Brighton. I'm uh, joining you again. It's been a little while. Yes, welcome. And I see that this week your raid-faced bedpost is out, just out of shot here. So uh, that ruins that particular joke I had lined up. Anyway, uh, joining me from Frankfurt, John Linneman. Hey, Rich. How's it going? Uh, absolutely fantastic. <laughs> so... Let's get going with uh, our first topic of the week. Man, this one is a bit of a debacle. Um, Resident Evil PC version, Resident Evil Village, um, had some bizarre DRM issues. We thought they were technical issues with the game at launch. But it turns out that a cracked version of the game solves these issues, radically improves performance in some areas, removes intrusive stutter in others. John, what do you make of this? Yeah, so this is something I think a lot of the PC gaming community has long suspected, uh, but it's never, or usually doesn't rear its head in quite such a strong fashion as this. Although I'm learning of some other games, such as apparently Immortals Phoenix Rising has a similar stutter, uh, so I hear. But essentially, um, you know, I understand the need for DRM, not that I'm a huge fan necessarily here, but uh, when it starts to intrude on the experience for paying customers, I feel like that's... Uh, that's a huge problem. And I feel like this only continues to hurt uh, the perception of what Denuvo even offers. Uh, it's not popular in the game space right now. And, you know, obviously this seems to delay the cracking of games, which is good in a sense, but not at this cost, right? Like, it's just... Uh, I would be pretty upset if this was the only version I had to play, if I had purchased this... You know, especially running like a high-end PC here, uh, it's pretty unacceptable. And there really is no, there was no fix for this until the community got involved, essentially. So the only thing I will say, though, is since this is specifically with a Capcom game, Capcom has taken this kind of feedback before in a different way. When we pointed out that, say, Devil May Cry 5 on PlayStation 5 had the, the issue where it always wanted to run in 120 hertz mode, for instance... They actually went back to the drawing board and uh, they, they fixed that. And that was great. So I do have a little bit of hope here that perhaps now that this is sort of more widely known and more being discussed so clearly that they might be able to go back and make the change. But still, um, we can only hope that this kind of serves as a warning for other developers, though. I'm not sure right, it will. Yeah. <laughs> I, th I think um, the, the issue where well, you mentioned Denuvo there and... Um, I think the point to raise here is that the information provided by the hackers kind of suggested that um, uh, it was actually Capcom's additional DRM on top of Denuvo that caused the issue. But this also, like, again, like looking online, it does seem to affect other games to varying degrees, like Immortals Phoenix Rising, which apparently has a similar kind of stutter when dealing with certain situations. Um and I suspect the link there is Denuvo more than anything else. 
So right. I don't know, but uh, but it is we we don't have any evidence. That's the point. That, that's uh, the, you're, you're right. We <laughs> we don't have any evidence. Um, but where there's smoke, there's fire. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What's well, really what's really kind of striking to me is that it's so kind of uh, tied to the what's going on in the game. Uh, like as you said in your video, Rich, it was seems like certain actions are, are kind of the trigger for a. a, a a test to see if this is a like authentic software. This made me, uh, this reminds me of some games kind of do this weird DRM trick where they try to, uh, or certain in-game actions occur if the DRM is not detected or if there's a, an issue there, like serious Sam three, I think it was, uh, essentially if you were playing a pirated version in, in one of the levels early on, this large scorpion enemy would appear in the world running at like, 4x speed and he would just chase you around and kill you over and over again you couldn't defeat him he was just there to to basically ruin the game for you and you know i i actually thought that was kind of a clever funny thing and that drm did not impact the performance of the game so you know yeah i I, it's a cute little feature but i think it's ultimately self-defeating and that it makes you hate the game yeah, you know, see, so you don't you, you don't exactly sample right. the game via piracy and think, "Whoa, this is awesome! I'm going to play this game. I'm going to go out and buy it officially." You know, it could just they could just come up with a with a sort of you know premature game over screen if you enjoyed this buy it. That would actually sort of make sense to me, but actually, you know, sabotaging your own game like that turn it into a demo or something. You know, uh, I think uh, Dragon Quest Five on DS did something like this. It had. Uh, like this uh, opening ship area where you'd uh, just never be able to leave. I think that's right. And it just meant, you know, people just never got off that um, that boat and uh, never got to see the actual game. Whereas if they did that for a wider part of the game, at least then it'd be like, cuts, and now buy the game, please. Um, you know, you've had your sample. D- DRM in general is just... I-, I would love to see more data on this, whether this really makes a difference. I mean, there's... We don't really know per se. Uh, like, what are companies looking at to determine this? I mean, they must have their reasons for sticking with this stuff. It must make a, a, a financial difference, or at least they think it does. Exactly. Yet, you know, some places still promote DRM-free releases, and they seem to be doing rather well. But again, yeah, there wasn't there's... the Witcher, the Witcher Three one. Yeah, thing? yeah, yeah. 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 Cyberpunk was pretty well. good. Cyberpunk as well. Uh, yeah. They didn't help their case with other things with that game, of course. But um, <laughs> I guess, you know, the thing about DRM, though, is that it really, like, sometimes it can just, it really gets in the way. Like, one of my one of the best examples is uh, Trackmania Sunrise, which was actually the second Trackmania game. And it's a unique installment in that series. I actually have the boxed version. That uses Star Force DRM, along with some other games of that era, and that literally like installs some sort of a device. But the problem is, is that it doesn't seem to work on any OS newer than Windows XP. And um, even then, it's it's sort of a, a crapshoot whether it will actually work on that machine. So that's a game I've never been able to play again on any PC because it just doesn't work because of Star Force. And it was effective enough that as far as I can tell, unless something's changed, it has never been cracked. So uh, that's that's really, you know, this this kind of stuff is just not good. But Denuvo is obviously not, like, it's it's delaying things, but the games are still getting cracked, and now the paying customers are suffering. It's been around for so long, Denuvo. Um, I think slowly people have accepted that it's there, a bit more than when it was first kind of added. 
uh, like 10, 20 years ago. It, it seems like it's been a while. But I, 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 it's still a necessary evil in a lot of games, I think, uh, especially single-player games where... Because we move so much to online stuff like Fortnite, Apex Legends, uh, something with online integration where they can verify that you're playing, you know, or you, you're buying something. Um, but for an experience like Resident Evil uh, Village, it's like, well... That's an interesting point, Tom. There was also that recent... Um... Forget the which game it was, maybe an Anno game or something else. But it, it was a Ubisoft strategy game where um, it required online activation for single player, and they shut down the server. Now apparently you can't play beyond the first stage anymore uh, legally. So it's well, that just, sucks. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, the more you think about this topic, the more you see these instances of people buying the game having a rough time because of DRM. Uh, and this is just sort of like the latest case. And one of the worst ones, I'd say, just in terms of impacting the experience you get. I, I guess there's a, you know, it's one of the banes of PC gaming in a way. You know, you've got that freedom to do as you may with the software, but uh, and other people do as well. But uh, there's no sort of safe wall. There's no safeguarding of the code. Well, look, my, my opinion on this Resident Evil situation is really straightforward. Uh, it's not 100% clear that the piracy, anti-piracy issues are causing the problem, except we've got a cause and effect here, which is that uh, a cracked version of the game that removes the, the DRM solves the primary performance issues that we encountered here. So either uh, they've optimized, the, yeah, the hackers optimized the game, or it is the, uh, the, the DRM that is at fault. That is the, 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 the number one issue for me is that there is a pirate version of the game out there that runs better than the version of the game that's available to buying, you know, to people who've bought and paid for the games. And that's totally unacceptable. It's just like that is the, you know, the red line. The bottom line is if your DRM is causing performance problems in a game, that is a red line that as a developer or as a publisher, you cannot cross because it destroys all kind of credibility for the system. Uh, secondly, the, the thing that kind of concerns me now, you know, the sort of thing that's making me wonder whether it is the DRM systems at play here is the fact that there are um, user mods out there that apparently help uh, reduce the stutter. And um, uh, my question then changes from, is it a anti-piracy measure to uh, causing the problem or, and it shifts to simply this. Why are users having to fix games made by developers like Capcom who you know, have got these vast budgets for these games? Uh, because it's just not right. It just does not make sense. And I think the th other thing that surprised me about this whole sort of uh, investigation that I did was that the issues that Alex highlighted um, on the launch version of the game have not been patched at all. They've not, you know, nobody's looked at it in the two months since the game was out. And, you know, that's that's a red flag. And the other thing, of course, is that the console versions of the game um, don't have these issues, which is, again, you know, the thing we need to sort of point out at this point is that consoles are effectively PCs. You know, they've got stripped down operating systems. Uh, they've got extra features. Uh, they've got different configurations at the system level, but fundamentally, if you're compiling code for your GPU, you know it should run just as well on a uh, on a PC as it does a console. 
And uh, similarly on the CPU side, there's no real excuses anymore for the PC to be suboptimal compared to the consoles because, you know, uh, the consoles and PCs running exactly the same technology pretty much. So, you know, this whole thing has really made me quite depressed, to be honest. And it was actually, um, it was actually really difficult to do the video because fundamentally, um, uh, I don't really enjoy doing uh, what you could call sort of gotcha videos or takedown videos, pointing the finger at developers and publishers, because, you know, we speak to these guys, you know, pretty much every week, you know, it's part of the job to understand the latest and greatest in gaming technology. We need to speak to the people who make these games. And we know that they're people just like us. They, we know that they're people who want to do the best possible job, get the best possible um, code out there, the best possible, possible product. Sometimes mistakes are made, but never do I really think um, that it's a deliberate attempt by a big corporation to, uh, to to do over the user, you know. But when stuff like this happens, it ha has to be highlighted so it never happens again. So, Rich, I think that's a really important point, and I think that speaks to the job you did in that video, is that we don't post reactionary, like, gotcha videos regularly. That's a very rare thing. So when it does happen, uh, it's kind of a serious thing, right? Like... This, this is a situation that needed to be raised. Uh, and I felt like, you know, it's, it's that when it does happen, you should listen. Your, exactly. wise, word, your wise words are true here. And I think, um, you know, again, we've said this in the past, when we do have an issue with a game, the first thing we do is tell the PR person involved. And we did that with this. Um, to, first of all, I wanted a comment, which hasn't come back as of yet, but I'm hoping that something will appear. Um, but secondly, I don't want a Digital Foundry video to appear that criticizes a developer or publisher without them having knowledge that we're going to be doing it. And if we've got something wrong, which is entirely possible, then, you know, they have the right to reply. They have the right to sort of say, hey, hold on, have you tested this? Have you tested that? Uh, can we get some more information from you about your testing? All of this stuff. I mean, um, MVG actually did a really good, Modern Vintage Game actually did a good video highlighting this issue on Monday. And uh, that was when I was kind of deep into the testing work on this. Now, I could have put the video out on Monday if I'd really pushed it. I really could have uh, easily put it out on Tuesday, but I was kind of hoping that we would get some positive feedback from uh, Capcom to, to kind of at least present both sides of the story. Um, hopefully that will happen. I'm, I'm still confident that we'll get something from them. But um, yeah, it's about sort of trying to be as balanced as possible. But it was really difficult in this situation because um, it, there's just red flags all over the place here and PC users don't deserve this. You know, fundamentally, if you're investing so much in your games hardware, you expect to get the performance out of it. I mean, the concepts that, uh, you know, the game could be running at 100 and, what, over 100 frames per second and then some flies appear and you're down to 30, 40. That's ridiculous. <laughs>
we know this engine is very well optimized, right? So it's almost like, you know, all their hard work is going to waste here in the PC due to this issue. Yeah. And, you know, I honestly think if there's a lesson to be learned from this, it's that um, if you're going to add DRM, if let, let's assume that the DRM is the issue for this, right? Um, then it's got to be part of your technical validation process. If you've added uh, DRM and it's producing obtrusive performance issues, that has got to be part of your technical validation procedure. And if not, why not? You know, that's that's kind of the big question that um, is sort of been haunting me about this, because it's pretty clear that, you know, there are some issues with Resident Evil Village options that we really would have liked to have seen that weren't in there. But the bottom line is the game is performant. There would have been engineers at Capcom who would have signed off on that game and been quite happy about it. But then something happened that made it really bad. It was likely they, they did optimize as uh, thoroughly as they could. They worked with QA and the Denuvo uh, uh, edition just came at very late. Well, as, again, you know, it's as, uh, just to point out here, it turns out that there's Capcom has got their own anti-tamper measures within Resident Evil Village, and actually the crackers are talking about that as being the primary issue. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that's yeah. that's the interesting part. That's the I, combination. I also read, yeah, I also read that um, there might well be uh, some Steam DRM in there as well, which I guess would be standard if you're on the platform. Dude, three three layers of DRM <laughs> is like a nightmare, man. That's just it's just a bridge too far for me. <laughs> well, look, you know, the bottom line is that right now. The ball is in Capcom's court. The issue has been widely reported. Um, and I hope that we've done a bit to kind of signal boost that and to actually get something done about it because um, this is this is really bad, you know? The, the hope here, Rich, is if this does get fixed and they address it, and I hope they will, that it won't happen, at least with Capcom games again in the future. You know, usually when something like this goes wrong for a company, you know, they, they look back on it as a tale of caution. Fingers crossed. But anyway, let's move on to uh, the next topic. So this is an interesting one. Um, we wanted to cover the patch for the new wave of consoles for A Plague Tale Innocence. Uh, Asobi, excellent studio. Uh, a Plague Tale Innocence, excellent game. Uh, we were told that there would be 60 frames per second upgrades for the new wave of consoles, but it actually turns out that um, mm -hmm. there is 120 hertz support on Xbox Series consoles. Now, this was discovered, uh, was brought to our attention by a guy on Twitter with the alias GameCop3, uh, which is pretty awesome. So, Tom, why don't you talk, <laughs> talk to us about this one? Uh, yeah, I mean, we got more than we bargained for, didn't we, with uh, with this? Went in thinking 60. Uh, that would be all right. I'm perfectly uh, kind of happy with that. And then, uh, well, frustratingly for me, I was about, uh, you know, in the final stages of you know, finishing the video, our analysis on the, the next-gen versions. And I thought, well, this is done and dusted. Nothing much of a, you know, not a huge story, 30 to 60, not massive deal. Then... This uh, this tweet comes in, you know, highlighting that there is in fact 120 hertz support, but only on the Xbox machines. So PS5 does seem to miss out on the uh, kind of hardware level uh, use of 120 hertz uh, when booting the game. It just doesn't kick in. So uh, without software support, PS5 isn't going to uh, spit out 120 FPS. I think Tom. This, so this is kind of. This is a lot more interesting to me than just Plague Tale, uh, I think. 
And this is something I, th- I would like to see more often. So I, I almost wonder if this is actually like not intentional because it, you know, the difference. <laughs> I do with wonder that, about that. <laughs> the, the, the thing with Xbox is you can set your output refresh rate, just like anything else. And it's system wide. If you choose 120 Hertz, everything outputs at 120 Hertz. Usually, although there's this weird thing with HDR that Rich ran into. Um, and on PS5, games need to specifically initiate 120 hertz, right? And so you can't do that in this game at all on there. And not that it supports VRR either or anything like that. So, But on the Xbox side, it feels to me like when you're running at 120, the frame rate cap is just removed and the game is just allowed to run free. If you do that without a VRR screen, though, it doesn't look very nice because it's not actually 120 frames per second. It's quite variable. I mean, it seems to be from like the the seventies to the nineties outside and up into the hundreds when you're indoors, which is fine. But, but this is actually awesome. If you have a VRR display, uh, so much so that I think that this should be an optional mode in other, in other games, because, you know, that's the whole thing about VRR when you're above 60 FPS, especially, um, you, you can't really easily tell the difference between say 80 frames per second and a hundred frames per second or 120. Like there is a difference, but you don't feel it. You know what I mean? It's just this smooth, consistent experience. Um, and in fact, that's, that's how I was able to enjoy some high, like cyberpunk. I played that on the PC, everything maxed out, you know, with the full ray tracing, everything. I couldn't lock the frame rate down, but because I ran with uh, VRR for the entire experience, the game the game always felt consistent and smooth on this PC, right? And it's the same thing here. But I guess the the big problem though that I foresee from a development perspective is how do you actually signal this to the users, right? Um, on the Xbox side, like in this case, it just does it automatically. But the pro- the reason I think this Twitter user, uh, GameCop3, noticed it is because it looks like he was playing Xbox on a on a PC monitor of some sorts that didn't necessarily... Well, I guess it did have VRR, but um, it just... I guess, I guess what I was getting at was, like, if you loaded this up without a VRR screen, you'd have a bad time, and the developers wouldn't want that. Uh, so I feel like you'd need to do something in the options menu to illustrate that, hey, this is this is removing the cap up to whatever your selected refresh rate is. And you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. It's kind of like you almost need like a, uh, a, a sort of symbol or something on the game tile itself before you boot it, maybe. Uh, it's, you know, just to say that, hey, there is support for this feature. Uh, almost like HDR. Yeah, but it's it's it is difficult to signal to the user. We're getting to this age where games have all these different modes, right? Like you look at Ratchet and Clank with its 120 hertz but 40 FPS mode, right? To enable that, you have to first enable 120 hertz in the game, but then also switch the graphics mode to fidelity mode to see it, right? So it's like multiple toggles, which is probably about as simplified as you can realistically get there. But with something like this, it's like okay, you uncap the frame rate. Uh, but if you're, if you're only using a 60 Hertz display, you know, what does that, does that mean anything? No, not really. So I, 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 this is the only like, the issue I see as far as development is concerned is how do you communicate this to the users? Yeah. It takes a little bit of, uh, knowledge on the subject before you go in a bit like a PC, uh, yeah. yeah, you kind of, we're kind of veering towards that with the console space. 
developers have been so tempted to you know add more graphics uh, options features and usually so often we see them stripped out completely compared to pc but i don't know i'm all for it i i think it's uh it's good to have that flexibility but you're right the communication behind it is it's it's kind of lacking at this point i yeah i, I definitely see what you mean with that uh, but with the plague tale i mean it's almost like uh as we were saying did they intend to have this in the game because from what we can see the you know uh, the actual way it performs the way it actually you know there's no optimizations to the, for the game over the 60 fps mode it's exactly the same i mean series x for example uh runs at 1440p and uh all the same shadow settings all the same everything uh as the regular 60 hertz mode so they did i mean think about how much they could have um squeezed out of that machine if they did yeah i i i genuinely don't believe that this was intentional here i mean maybe it is we don't actually know either way but to me it seems like it's just something that happens when you unlock the frame rate by you know using 120 hertz it's a lucky accident and uh it's uh, yeah in the end uh, for, for our video we, you know we pushed the video back just to factor in this because it's actually quite a big story for it I don't think it's in there deliberately because the experience, if you don't have VRR, is really not great at all. It's constant screen tearing, constant. It's basically like what happens with a PC game if you just turn VSync off and allow the frame rate to go as high as it can possibly go. Um, but if you do have VRR, it's kind of just like a nice little bonus. Uh, the frame rate range is kind of between, I think, like 65 to about 110 frames per second. Um, the interesting thing, I think, from my perspective was how we actually show this in the review. And I ended up um, taking 120 frames per second photography of the screen running both of the Xbox consoles. And I used um, the LG's um, uh, VRR monitor. So you actually see the refresh rate update in real time, which is in turn the frame rate of the game. Uh, which I thought was, um, we've kind of got to approach how we do VRR on Digital Foundry on a general level. So I think this is kind of like an interesting way possibly to do it. I'm not sure it's the, the way forward. But uh, in this case, it kind of showed the relative performance differences between the two versions of the game and kind of the range that you get. Um, I don't think it's transformative for the game because it's, not, it's a pretty slow-paced game. You don't really need 120 hertz. It's kind of nice to have, but you don't really get it. Um, when you're in sort of 80 frames per second, 90 frames per second plus, it's it does feel noticeably smoother, but it's not there for the, you know, it's not consistent. What I do like about it, and I hope they don't patch it out because I do think it was it's in their right era. Um, what I do like about it is that, you know, future Xboxes uh, will be able to run this at 120 flat, you'd imagine. So having the option in the here and now, interesting thing to have. But I think if you've got a 120 hertz screen that doesn't have VRR, when you play this game, set the Xbox to 60 because it's definitely a more attractive game at that point. Mm, definitely. Okay, I think we've talked out on that one. Let's move on to the next topic. So this week, uh, as we film, is the release of The Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword HD uh, for Nintendo Switch. This one originally launched on uh, the Wii. The Wii? And, that little controller uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um uh yeah contentious game right from the word go 
How does it fare on the Switch uh, there, John? Because I've got a question here from Chris Gardner, and he's saying, what happened with the Skyward Sword remake? From the reviews, it feels like Nintendo grossly undershot the mark. Yeah, I'm a little confused by that question, actually, because I kind of feel like they they solved most of the issues I had with the game originally. Not all, but most. Um, so Skyward Sword, it reviewed fairly well back in the day, but generally I feel like it wasn't as well regarded as others. It was kind of, I would say this is like the last in the line of Ocarina of Time inspired Zelda games, you know, where it's like, here's this is the first 3D Zelda game, but then they bolt on some new concepts, you know, in this case it was motion control. But otherwise, it's very similar. Um, but some of the problems with the original, for me at least, relate to... Uh, th- this was a time when Nintendo was was pushing at an all-time high things like tutorial text, uh, having your Navi character, in this case Fee, popping in constantly. Characters stopping you constantly. It's like you, you'd run for a minute and then you get dialogue boxes. This happens a lot in the Wii game. Um, and then the dialogue boxes are actually slow. The text comes out slowly across the screen. Then you can skip it after, you know, you can't skip cutscenes either. It's just everything felt very plotting. Um, and then on top of that, you know, the, because you're using the Wii controller, there was no like actual right stick camera. So you're always just kind of looking forward, just like the N64, really. Uh, but that felt constraining at the time. And uh, these are the, these are some of the key things that the that the Switch version does really well now, essentially. They've overhauled the whole dialogue system. Now the text can be um, buttoned through relatively quickly, like at, at actual reading speed now. Um, you can skip cutscenes if you want. Uh, characters don't bug you nearly as often. Like Fee is something you can bring up at any time by pressing the down on the D-pad or whatever you call the little buttons on the switch controller <laughs> that's in the shape of a D-pad. Um, and you can still get advice, but it's not constantly getting in your way. And I think, you know, when I was doing my comparison shots, this really hit home because there were several points where I, on switch, I'd run through the village, right? Cause I started with the intro just to get to the comparisons and I'd go from point A to point B smoothly. Okay. Then I do it on the Wii version and I start running there and on many of these shots, I'd just be running along and the game would just stop and a character standing on the side would suddenly bring up a slow series of dialogue boxes asking for Link's help with something or making a comment about something. And it just felt like there was these constant things getting in your way, preventing you from actually playing the game. Uh, and they got rid of all of that stuff. It's all optional now. Like if you want to talk to that kid that's there by the tree, you can do it. There's a little thing over his head to indicate that he has something to say but it doesn't force you to listen to it now. And that makes it much more pleasant to experience. Then there's the right stick camera, which is just kind of a, a big thing for me in general, where, you know, you as you're exploring the world, you want to be able to look around and you can't do that on Wii. So adding that helps a lot. And in general, you know, things like the frame rate 60 FPS now, uh, the visuals are clearer. So you get, you can, when you run into these large areas, uh, you can kind of look out across them and parse what you're seeing, which makes it easier to understand what you're doing. Whereas on Wii, the combination of that painty, painterly effect with the low 480p resolution and the dithering, every scene looked like messy 
So it was actually hard to even parse what you were looking at sometimes because they were pretty dense environments at points. Um, and there, there's more to this as well, but fundamentally, you know, it's just a more pleasant game to play. And it's also a different time when this released that formula of Zelda was well-worn. It was the rise of open world games, which seemed new and exciting. And this game felt constrained, uh, but in somewhat of a monkey's paw twist, everything went open world. Well, not literally, but you know, there's open world games everywhere. And now it's like, okay, I'm actually tired of those now. Uh, so going back to a game like this that I didn't finish originally because I got bored with it. Uh, I've went way past where I got on the Wii version and I, I keep playing and it's actually a lot of fun. So it's completely changed my opinion. I would have given it like a five or a six originally uh, just because of, all of these issues and and it kept me from wanting to finish the game which is weird for zelda i guess but this time you know it's it's i'd give it like an eight or an 8.5 not that we give scores in the videos but that's just kind of my personal thoughts on it now so yeah <laughs> i did like uh the uh the phrase monkey's poor twist <laughs> i uh I made the mistake of watching Wonder Woman 84 last night, which is oh, like no. the ultimate uh, monkey's yes. board twist there. <laughs> uh, which was a, just it truly a chuckle. Um, I don't really have too much to say about this. I didn't really play the game on the Wii. Um, fairly interested possibly in checking it out on the on the Switch because it does sound as though, you know, you've got those quality of life improvements and um, 60 frames per second. But, you know, is it a good Zelda game? Yes, I think it is. So here's the actual dungeons are phenomenal. Uh, there, there's nothing like that in Breath of the Wild either. They got rid of that kind of really high quality dungeon. Um, and fundamentally, the stuff. So the big complaint that a lot of people have is that, especially as you make progress in the game, you revisit areas you've been in before, uh, and then there's these teardrop quests. Uh, I hadn't actually played those before because I never got far enough in the Wii game to see that. Um, and I didn't realize that they were not liked by the community and I really had no problem with it. I thought it was kind of fun and cool atmosphere. Uh, and then revisiting areas, it's the same argument I have with Metroid where the more you, as you revisit an area you've been to, you sort of gain a new understanding and appreciation for the level design and you become familiar with it. And that works here because you do revisit an area, but then you're unlocking new areas within those familiar areas, right? So you're going to new zones and new spots within a place that you had previously been. And I don't know, I, I find that relatively satisfying. And it's it's not that dissimilar from some of the other well-regarded Zelda games, like Link's Awakening, the Game Boy game or the remake. There's so many points in that game where you're just doing a chain of talking to a person to go get an item, to then bring that item to someone else and then go get another item. You do that a lot in that game. And you basically do that here as well. But if you're just kind of mainlining through it, I haven't found that to be too uh, annoying or anything. And just, I don't know. It's the, the only complaint I really have is that they didn't really deliver on the promise of button controls. So it does, I've been using the two uh, Joy-Con with motion and that actually works okay. And I don't usually love motion control, but it's totally fine in this game. Uh, but if you want to use the pro controller or play in handheld mode, they essentially map all of the motion commands to the right stick, uh, which doesn't feel great. And on top of that, to use the camera, then you have to always hold the L1 button, uh, which is just awful. 
So I don't like that. I found that very frustrating and I felt like it should have been reversed where you would hold a button to get your sword out, swing the sword and let go to put it away. But instead it's the opposite where you always have, you're always ready to use the sword when you touch the right stick, but, uh, you, you, you know, you have to hold a button for the camera. So that's kind of the biggest flaw right now, but yeah, I, I said a lot. I apologize. You guys are just sitting there like what, but uh, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about this game cause I, I've been playing it a lot lately. So, um, yeah, hopefully I can put this into more words in the video, which should already be out by the time you see this, hopefully. Uh-huh, definitely. <laughs> I was, to be fair, I was thinking more than just what, uh, <laughs> 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 what is <But> Zelda? <laughs> you know, we're not having an existential crisis. Don't worry. So you're uh, just playing out Chad Warden in your head. <laughs> The Wii? <laughs> anyway, um, let's move on to the next topic. I think we've talked out on this one as well. It's actually quite interesting. One of my favourite games on the Saturn, um, uh, Power Slave, also known as Exhumed. Um, it seems that there's news here, actual news for this ancient game. And I'm quite excited about it. And I think, John, you're probably the man to clue us in on what's going on here. Yeah, so from what I can tell, so Power Slave slash exhumed uh is sort of appeared in the news again because first of all it was revealed it's that i can't remember the name of the company it's um there's some publisher that's bringing the dos version to steam now right which okay that's weird the dos version is cool it's not as good as the console game totally different game but that also triggered sort of like another tweet from steven kick uh who runs night dive you know i love those guys over there uh, with uh, some power slave art and it reminded me that oh yeah they're also working on that so it's so the story is right so so kaiser samuel villarreal uh the genius programmer doing a lot of this night dive stuff with other talented people as well um one of his earlier projects after doom 64 ex was he did power slave ex uh which got released on the pc but it was in an incomplete state it was playable based on the PlayStation version rather than the better Saturn version, which does have a significant difference. If you watch my video on it, you'll see. Uh, but that ended up not actually happening officially because of something to do with rights, rights issues, basically. So it seems like that's been resolved now and we might be getting close to at the actual official final release of power slave EX, uh, which would be, phenomenal because if this is released as a proper retail product now uh, under night dive i suspect that means we'll finally get hopefully like the full saturn experience with all the level design stuff intact maybe and just generally like have an official way to access that game at an affordable price right uh and not have to put up with the incomplete pc version which I say put up, but I don't, you know, some of, some of the issues tie into changes to modern operating systems and it doesn't really work well for me anymore. So, uh, however this returns, whenever this returns, it seems like it's coming and it's probably going to be awesome. So this is sort of like a, to put out the warning, the power slave signal to people that more power slave is coming soon. And if you haven't played it, I can't recommend it enough. Uh, as I say in that video I did, it's kind of a prototype of what a game like metroid prime would become in a way like not fully that that complex 
but it has a lot of similarities in terms of, you know, you're going back and forth between different levels, gaining new powers to unlock new paths. And, uh, it really has this nice sense of exploration in addition to the combat. Um, so yeah, it's, it's good stuff. And I'm, it really seems like it's coming back now and that's great. <laughs> I've got quite a close relationship with this game from back in the day because we kind of, uh, championed it in Sega Saturn magazine. We kind of kept telling people that it was awesome and uh, they had to check it out. And um, it's to the point where one of the guys that I worked with uh, back in the day, uh, Dan Jevons, actually ended up working at Lobotomy Software. And um, yeah, he actually, there's there's a cheat on Saturn Quake um, that allows you to use the Knight's controller kind of like as a as you would use a 3D controller today. Yeah, Jevons mode or whatever it's called. Yeah, that's right. Dan Dan Jevons, that was the guy. Yeah, I hired him. And uh, yeah, so he was kind of, um, I think he worked for GameFan after leaving uh, where I worked. And then he uh, ended up at Lobotomy, which is kind of crazy. And at a sort of bizarre twist, not sure it's a monkey's paw twist, <laughs> but um, he uh, he was actually uh, one of the producers of the Sonic the Hedgehog movie, the, the well, latest that, one. That did very well, so I'd say that's uh, that's no bad thing. Yeah, good, good for good for Dan Jevons. I hope he's listening. And if not, why not? You know. Anyway, I think we've we've, we've covered that one. Uh, so let's move on to our final topic. So, Mister, it's this really fascinating retro device. It's essentially, FPGA based, if I'm not mistaken, allows for super high quality emulation, and it has now been evolved with a new core. Isn't that right, John? Yeah. So, um, I wanted to talk about the addition of Capcom Play System Two games or CPS Two to the Mister. This has been long in development for a while by uh, famed core creator. Yotego. Uh, he's been releasing this stuff in progress for his Patreon supporters, uh, which is awesome. But it finally got a public release. So anybody with a mister, if you don't contribute to his Patreon, which, you know, I'd say is probably worthwhile if you're really following this stuff because he does amazing work. Um, but now it's available for everyone to play, uh, which is awesome. So, uh, you know, this is the board that powered stuff like Marvel versus Capcom you know, it's got Alien versus Predator on there and tons and tons of others. Uh, pretty much everything Capcom from like the mid 90s up through 2000, you know. And um, yeah, this is this is like top tier Capcom arcade action that you can now get on a device running hardware accurate, like sort of hardware emulation that also supports proper 15 kilohertz 240p output uh, to CRT, which means you can get the, the original arcade style image directly on your screen. Um, and this isn't about like, you know, running out to, to pirate stuff either. This is, this is about for me, at least he, he has preserved those original arcade boards by doing this project, right? We now basically have perfect representations of these games in hardware, uh, that will live on for many years to come. So um, yeah, it's just an important step forward for the ever-evolving Mr. Project. And, of course, there's more cores and stuff coming from others as well. So I'm just amazed at how much stuff is being done on this little box. And, yeah, so if you're into Mr., check it out. Sounds good. Just to be clear, there's no monkey's paw twist on this one. <laughs> there is no monkey's paw twist on this one. I, I can assure you that. <laughs> 
I'm, I'm excited about uh, the Mr. Project, but I've not actually looked into it myself. All I've seen is your video, John, and, and kind of uh, ogling the uh, the specter of it behind you there, your little setup in the corner. Uh, oh yeah, the little Mr. Setup back there, exactly. Yeah, the last time I played the uh, CPS2 titles was uh, when we did that sort of a Capcom, Capcom Home Arcade uh, review and preview. Which was uh, not uh, obviously hardware based. It was emulation, and I remember, you know, there was a bit of work to do to get those running, get the sound in sync, and not chop up. And there was some uh, some uh, things to work out. But by the end, that turned out all right. It's funny though that they actually ripped out everything that they had done and like replaced it with a firmware update, where they redid a lot of stuff with the emulation. The whole UI was completely different. Uh, oh really yeah they made wow. some major changes to it in that second revision I mean, so it's i mean a, i loved i loved the look i mean the the whole thing was really exciting I as mean, far as uh, i understand some of it was down to there were you know there well i don't want to get into it but there were some issues with the way the emulation was done i believe and uh i can't remember all the details now but it was not it was not uh well received by the community to say the least uh for that reason um, but you know, it's, it has been changed. Is there, I've got a question for you about Mr. Is what is the limits of the FPGA? I mean, we talking like in terms of complexity of logic, uh, PS1, is that, has that been done? PS1 and Saturn are both being worked on right now and they seem feasible. The real problem is just the amount of space on the FPGA, like physical space to, for all those gates and everything. Um, and I think. So I don't know what the current state necessarily is of Mr. But talking to Kevtris some years ago, he seemed to feel that something like Nintendo 64 and above is perhaps a little bit, it's not entirely feasible just due to the complexity of the graphics chips and like the speed of everything. The clock speeds start to get a lot higher and just everything just ramps up in terms of complexity. And I'm not sure that the current Cyclone uh, FPGA chip in there uh, actually has the space to do it and i i don't even know what the state of actually reverse engineering that stuff is like either like and imagine once you get to like dreamcast and ps2 era it gets significantly more difficult but uh again i'm not an expert on that part of things otherwise i would be writing cores for the mister so uh that's that's just kind of what i've gathered so i think saturn and playstation are probably about the top that we'll see done perhaps in the console space and arcades i'd imagine will be similar where you know as the arcade boards start to get more high end it just becomes infeasible like i don't think we'll see any sega model arcade boards in there for instance right, um, that's a shame uh, that would yeah, be awesome but I, I just don't see how that would be feasible uh, <laughs> but who knows the mystery community keeps surprising us so absolutely we'll see Okay, well, that's the end of that. So let's move on. We're quickly going to talk about some Digital Foundry and DF Supporter Program content. And um, yeah, this is an interesting one, John, because um, obviously we've done a lot of coverage on Crisis Remastered uh, in the past. And uh, we did that fantastic video where you and Alex went to visit Crytek HQ. And despite the pandemic happening, I understand you've gone back so what's going on there? What can you share with us about it? So Alex and I went back. Uh, well, I I went back just last week, actually, and we were there a bit earlier as well this year. 
Um, essentially, when we looked at Crisis Remastered, we were pretty harsh on it, I think it's fair to say. We gave it its due, but there was a lot of problems with it. Um, and then we learned that Crisis 2 and 3 are getting remastered. So they shared some early preview builds of a, of the game with, with us to check out uh, earlier this year. We got to play it just as it was announced. And then I went to check it out again this week. And essentially what we've been doing is, um, in an interesting sort of thing, is uh, they've been l essentially giving us early access to in-development builds. And, and we've been providing our feedback on issues with it, which is something we've not really had a chance to do before in this sense. And the idea is it's like, you know, we, we gave a lot of feedback on crisis one remastered, but it was like right before launch and there was no way that they could have implemented any of those changes into the game by that point. And so it launched in kind of a bad state. Uh, the frame rate was rough. It was missing tons of features. Ascension wasn't there. Um, and it seems that they really took that to heart and they do not want that to happen with crisis two and three this time. Um, and you know, so in addition to getting more guys from Crytek actually involved this time with the Saber Interactive crew, uh, Alex and I have been submitting our own feedback just based on visual features, you know, stuff with the lighting, you know, things like we notice certain things are out of place or not looking quite right. We've also been looking at performance and, um, just kind of sharing our thoughts on it. So, um, if all goes up to plan, Hopefully these will be in a great state, but, uh, I did get a chance to actually interview two of the guys there when I was there as well. So I will have, I don't know when, but I, I need to edit together that video interview and that will actually have some new footage of the game running on a, I think it's the Xbox version running on series X. So yeah, it's a, it's an interesting thing. And I'm curious to see how this all turns out because, you know, it's, we we all love Crisis. Alex especially loves Crisis, and we just want to see Crisis release in the best state it can be. Um, and I hope that that happens this time. But so far, it's it's looking much 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 better than Crisis Remastered did early on. So, right. I think the issue is though that uh, it's come from a very different place, right? Because you know you've got uh, the basis of a much more modern CryEngine. They they aren't retrofitting an old CryEngine game into a new one. Or, or basically trying to port an old CryEngine title to, to new platforms, which I think was the main issue with Crisis Remastered. That was definitely one of the big issues is that, yeah, the, 2000, the 2007 PC original had a lot of features that were stripped out of the PS360 version when they made that. Uh, but because that version had console support already, it sounds like they decided to go start with that from the, the, as the starting point which in retrospect was kind of not the best thing to do as then they had to spend tons and tons of time going through that original 2007 version and just adding stuff back in. Uh, and not everything made it back in. It's, it's actually in a pretty good state now I'd say, but it's still missing some things. So, and I don't think it can ever be fully replicated at this point. So yeah. And, and the idea this time as well is that they're, they seem to be paying a lot more close attention to, duplicating the artistic vision of the original games, but sort of like getting rid of some of the things that maybe haven't aged as well. Like the color grading has changed. It's much more realistic looking now. Uh, they got rid of the In the original crisis two, for instance, it's super like green and blue tinted everywhere. Like this really strong, like, you know, 2011 era color grading going on. 
which was all the rage at the time, but they've really toned down the filter. It looks much more pleasant now. Uh, lots of new assets in there, you know, um, things like that. And yeah, it's, it's shaping up. So I'd be curious to actually um, show more and I'll be working on that interview. It's really cool that we get a chance to to help developers like this sometimes, you know, even a bit more directly. It's uh, it's just it's very satisfying, you know, that uh, the work we do can somehow translate to that. And uh, I think they responded well to your uh, feedback on Crisis One, I suppose, and that's uh, why we're in this position. I was I was happy that they weren't too uh, upset at us for that because, yeah, we we didn't pull any punches with that original coverage but you know you, you got to tell it like it is and that's that's how it was i mean it comes from a, a place of passion i mean alex loves that game i love that game it's one of my favorite pc games ever and uh so yeah they've got to get it right crytek is crisis uh as far as i'm concerned it's their baby and they need to nail it absolutely perfectly or and uh yeah it's just cool that we we can lend a hand with it exactly exactly and i'm just honored that developers actually care enough to listen to what we have to say about this stuff so yeah, yeah. i mean you know that's great um let's move on to the next topic which is looking at the docket here there's a new df retro play coming which means that the old one will be going live for everyone at some point um df retro play is essentially let's play but um since already come on board we've kind of jazzed it up a bit made it a bit more attractive and uh so, so what, what can you tease about this one, John? Well, you know, so, so those obviously, you know, we try to cram a bit more history and context into the discussions where possible. Um, but so the one that's launching publicly, then we did flip Nick ultimate pinball, which is one of my favorite uh, pinball games of all time. And like a hugely underlooked gem, I feel it was actually uh, released back in 2005 or so. And yeah, it's, if you like that weird PS2 era quirkiness, but with like serious pinball action, it's well worth checking out for the next one though. I'm not going to say what the game is, but I will say the platform and it's Nintendo 64. And part of the reason is we just got our hands on the new, um, N64 digital mod. So from pixel FX. So these are the guys that brought you the DC digital and the uh, PS1 Digital, so these direct HDMI mods for consoles that can support this, where they can actually tap into the digital video lines, it basically provides the best possible picture you can get. Um, and like those, the analog video is retained, but improved here as well, so you get both analog and HDMI out. And yeah, we're going to uh, showcase an N64 game or two running on that. Can you talk about the features of this uh, HDMI mod here, or is it under wraps? Because, you know, I think um, fundamentally the issue that I have with the N64 as a platform, um, it, I think it's actually one of the platforms that has fared the worst in terms of um, how things play today, because the frame rates were pretty terrible. The texture quality was was lamentable in many cases. And a lot of the games don't really hold up in the, in the present day. First of all, it remove, you, you have the option to remove some of the shall we say, deficiencies from the rendering. It Obviously, it has the de-blur function, which was actually a hardware feature that was used to sort of literally blur the image. It would like sort of extend the pixels over to create this like fuzzier looking image that when combined with composite video, I think they were just trying to go for that 
super filtered CGI look back then, but it doesn't really hold up well and it looks terrible on a flat panel. So you can turn that off in both analog and digital modes. Um, it has a lot of really advanced scaling options here, like the most that they've ever done. Uh, and there's like multiple levels of how you want to filter the pixels from like extreme pixel pre precision, like 100% sharp to slightly soft. So you kind of get to dial that in, which then is combined with their new scanline feature. Uh, and scanlines, of course, common thing, but usually in these hardware mods, the scanlines are fairly basic but they've, uh, they've implemented a really nice scanline function here that almost sort of takes in, it, it almost displays the characteristics of, of what a CRT would actually look like a little more closely, as in like, say, white sort of blooms over the edge of the scanline a little more versus like a darker color. So it sort of more simulates that CRT look. Um, and then, you know, you, you combine that with, with, uh, the, the clean digital signal that you're getting, it feels like you're basically wiping away like this layer of grime from N64 games, if you know what I mean. Uh, and it actually does just make them look a lot cleaner and crisper in a way that they never really did before. So while the frame rates and such, you know, it's still what it is. Um, the games look a lot nicer and it's, it's kind of one of those ways to actually make N64 look good on a flat panel which is actually the biggest challenge. If you just hook up a stock 64 to your flat panel TV, especially over like composite video, it's uh, it's pretty oh difficult boy. to look at. <laughs> so yeah. this, this makes N64 about as visually tolerable as it can possibly be, I would say. <laughs> There's the review quote on the bus sides. <laughs> and and yeah. for us, for content creators and such, it's really important for capturing this stuff because n64 itself is always tricky to capture and make it look good in the videos so this is a way to get the cleanest possible signal we can get from a real n64 uh and make it look okay in the video so it's that's a big deal for me okay and visually tolerable uh my <laughs> takeaways from that i, I mean uh, you, you know it's n64 man what can you say <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, the next discussion point, um, a video that uh, may well be live by the time this video is public to everybody, is the fact that we took a look back at um, Nintendo's very last E3 press conference, 2012. It's where they were basically uh, uh, telling us all about the Wii U. We'd had a tech demo the year before, but this was actual games on actual hardware. Uh, this one was a lot of fun, wasn't it, John? But... Um, um, I do kind of feel bad because, you know, the the Wii U didn't really do particularly well about, uh, you know, once it was out and about. And a lot of the sort of reaction to, to that particular conference was to kind of sort of cringe, really, about what was going on when we knew full well what was going to happen next. Yeah, this felt like the the end of an era, a turning point for Nintendo in general, where they just completely started down the new path that would eventually lead to the switch i would say uh, but this was their final e3 conference and from there they went to the nintendo direct format uh, for beyond that of course um and you could tell from the way they showed it at this conference that i don't want to say they didn't have confidence but something felt amiss 
like between the games they showed, the way things were presented, that long focus on Batman Arkham City Armored Edition uh, with its atrocious frame rate. And it's just like, you could kind of, I, I felt a little bit of discomfort watching this. Like, oh, this is, you can tell this, this isn't going to go well. And it, it did not go well. <laughs> and you, you also get the idea of why their marketing really seemed to struggle with this between the name and they really focused on the gamepad, right? And it really does. If you're not really in the know, I could see how somebody might mistake this as just like more Wii, but like with a new gamepad. Like, oh, you get this new gamepad. Um, I don't know. It just, it just looked overly busy. The gamepad isn't isn't that appealing, and you could hardly tell it was a new system. I mean, we could, but you know what I'm saying to the general to the Wii audience, perhaps. Uh, it, it it felt like this weird point where Nintendo was trying to get back with uh, the more, um, I guess, traditional gaming crowd, while also still keeping that Wii crowd, you know what I mean? And then they they kind of didn't get either. And then the Switch comes along, of course, after that, and it feels like a completely new direction, or mostly a new direction. But it's more like, I guess, traditional Nintendo again. There's a huge problem, though. You can't buy Devil's Third on the Switch. Is it true? Same yeah, that. it's true. Now, they also <laughs> haven't ported uh, stuff like Xenoblade Cross, which I think a lot of people are which is an interesting cool game um i don't think that's ever getting a switch port we're missing um, wind waker hd as well yeah wind waker we? hd and twilight princess hd which again yes, yeah i could still see those coming over to switch but it's hard to say if i don't know if nintendo has the desire to do that or not but i mean the other the wii is uh the wii u i don't know i i like the system in retrospect i think it's a cool machine but um, it was the wrong product for that time. And the only reason I look at it good is because it still had, it had awesome games on it just because they were Nintendo games. And, um, but now it's like, you can really see the missteps they made there. And it's so slow that OS, that's the thing we didn't, we didn't know at E3 when you watched that was how bad the user experience would be on the Wii U, uh, despite the Miiverse and, and nice water guy sort of brightening things up. Uh, the rest of the experience was miserable. It's like when you click settings and you just sit there for like 10 seconds while it slowly loads into this menu. Um, it really makes you makes you think. <laughs> yeah, you've got nothing else to do. And there was that entire setup process when you first got the console where you had to download the update. It was like excruciating. It, it... You kind of still have to do that for modern consoles, but it was... It was the speed. That's the difference, right? It took so long to do anything on that thing. It was so slow. Uh, absolutely absurd. Um, compared to this, and you, you do the Switch now and you update that thing and it's just like almost instant when they do the firmware updates and booting the system from a cold boot as well. It's super ultra fast. Uh, the whole thing, like the whole super simple Switch UI, I think is a direct response to the people's reaction to the Wii U. They're like, we got to keep this simple, streamlined, and fast. And they did that. Yeah, I think, um, well, as we say in the video, uh, it was a, I'm not going to say it was a disaster, but it was certainly a disappointment. And um, the good thing about it is that <laughs> it's basically given Nintendo, an entire generation's worth of games that they could just port over 
And, uh, you know, it just shows that the quality of the games was never in doubt. It was just the fact that the system didn't gain any sort of traction. And uh, the ability to play those games in handheld form is, is a bit of a game changer, I think. I will say, though, that the Wii U did give us some really cool new, like, experimental concepts that perhaps Nintendo hasn't... They've been less doing lately, I guess, on the Switch. Like, for instance, Mario Maker. That was extremely fresh on there. There is a, there is a Switch version, of course, but that was really cool. That was new. Uh, it actually still works better on the on the Wii U, I would argue, since you have two screens at once. And that stylus actually is really great for precise manipulation of the levels. Um, Splatoon was a big deal when that hit. Um, and that never... Gyro it, controls? Well, the gyro controls, the gamepad stuff, and just beyond that, just the game itself. It's not about the hardware per se. It's more just the concept was cool. It was fun. It was fresh. Um, and it actually had some pretty good single player stuff that didn't appear in Splatoon 2, by the way. Uh, and, you know... The Wii U also gave us Mario Kart 8. It gave us Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze. These are like top-tier games. Uh, and they, and Pikmin 3, of course, is great too. I mean, there's so much good stuff on there. In the end, it's just it didn't really attract people at the time. And like you said, Rich, it was good for them on the Switch because it does give them all these games they can just bring over, which is a little bit annoying to a degree, but I, I kind of get it because they launched the Switch with... Basically, within that first year, they had a brand new 3D Mario game and they had Breath of the Wild uh, and other stuff as well. So, like, it's clear that Nintendo's development teams have been focusing so hard on getting those games out early in the Switch's life that once they are out, what are those development teams doing? They're working on new games and they can't get them out that fast, right? So, there's there's obviously going to be this void uh, just due to the fact that they all release their big games around the same period. So... Uh, what better way to fill that than with uh, Wii U games, I guess. So we've got to do another one of these conference videos. We, we should, where yeah. Think, where do you think we should go next? We should probably get some feedback from the audience on yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, so we never did tackle the 2013 E3 conferences for Xbox or PlayStation 4, right? We did the reveals, but we didn't do that. We could also maybe look back to like older times, look back to the GameCube PS2 era or something. Uh, and see if we can find any good versions of those conferences as well. You know, there's a lot of options in there, but yeah, maybe we should uh, do like a survey or something. See what people think. We'll put in a few options there, but it is fun. I love doing these videos. Yeah. So we had um, good quality versions of these conferences via these E3 DVDs that you had, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, Often. Uh, are there um, missing ones that, or have you got them all? Are there ones uh, that the no. audience could possibly help out with? Uh, that that's actually i am missing some so yeah and sourcing good quality versions especially of the older ones is really difficult uh because even when they're saved online they're usually were uploaded to youtube many many years ago so it's in like low quality usually like 360p 30 frames per second with just so many artifacts it's not really pleasant to watch and part of the appeal of those dvds was that you could actually get the full 60 frames per second versions. I mean, technically 60 fields per second, but you, you get the, the correct motion of everything that was shown, uh, which is really nice. So I would love to find more conferences in that quality. So if anybody out there has that stuff, uh, 
and is willing to share, let me know or let us know. Um, let's move on quickly to talk about the DF supporter program. So uh, this week I put out 120 hertz versions of the Ratchet and Clank 40 FPS comparison videos. So you can see 30, 40, and 60 frames per second as it would run on a 120 hertz screen. Uh, we did it at 50% speed in the main video, which captures all of the motion resolution, but isn't the same as seeing it actually in, in motion as you would play it. Uh, also, this whole VRR situation, we want to cover VRR, we want to show it, but how do you show it? Um, the Plague Tale Innocence, we've tried off-camera shots at 120 frames per second. Uh, the full comparison uh, video of that is also available for Patreon supporters at 120 frames per second. Um, there's something here on the docket, I think uh, Audi's put it in. Audi and Try talk Final Fantasy XIV music coming soon. What's that about? All right, so obviously um, Mark Triforce Duddleson uh, from My Life in Gaming did a uh, an awesome Final Fantasy XIV video on our channel. Uh, and Final Fantasy XIV has great music, and you know, it's one. Of, it's both him and Audi are very passionate about the soundtrack in this game, and essentially wanted to do sort of a bonus video, just um, kind of talking about it, sharing some of the tracks, and getting into some of the details and history and stories behind the music. So, um, I think that's something they really wanted to do. So, uh, we'll check that out. Good stuff. So there is a new DF retro underway. We'll talk about that in a minute, but I think. Basically, there's so much going on on the DF supporter program with the retro tier. So what have you been up to recently, just generally? Oh, man. Yeah, we've done a, a pickups video recently. You know, we're, we're constantly just filming discussions. We've been doing behind the scenes sort of like um, streams with the patrons as well. So kind of talking about how we make certain videos and also oh, that's right. Yeah. Talking about and it hasn't just been that we've been bringing in some other unique footage that we found and, and ch trying to share some insight into this stuff. And that's, that's actually, uh, that's proving to be a lot of fun. So I'm enjoying that. Um, so yeah. And Audie's been doing a great job handling a lot of the production work on this stuff. Um, and then as you say, of course, uh, now that we're doing the monthly DF retros, uh, we put out super star Wars for patrons recently. Uh, the PlayStation video is fully out and public to everybody. Uh, which I'm really happy with the response to that and we'll definitely want to do some more very large projects it's like that at some point in the future. Um, but then the current newest upcoming episode of DF Retro, it's going into production next week. So we've already started. I've done a lot of capture and preliminary stuff. Uh, there's still more to do, but yeah, next week, kicking things off, we're hit, we're hitting the... We're, we're, we're getting into it. It should be fun. And it's a cool topic. So you're not going to name the game? I, I can't name it yet. We got we to gotta wait. You can't name it. You physically, you've got a mental block. You cannot tell us what it is. No, I'm, I'm not. I'm not allowed per code uh, 659 in the uh, DF Retro Tier playbook. Fair enough. Well, I think that's everything we've really got to talk about with uh, the DF content this week. Uh, so, yeah, as you can tell, there's a lot going on. Uh, join the supporter program and you get weekly updates uh, after our Monday morning content meeting. Everything we've discussed, we put it online to share with everybody. And um, I prefer when uh, T-Rex Richard says that it's radical. 
Join our supporter program today. It's radical. <laughs> I think uh, I think the bottom line is that you know we're just trying to give a lot more access to what we're doing, whether it's on Discord, uh, whether it's on the main Patreon site. So if you want to get involved with what we're doing, if you want to be even be a part of the process, you know some of the stuff we've had back, some of the ideas, some of the tip-offs. It's just been hugely important in making what we do uh, even better. Uh, but let's move on now to uh, the supporter Q&A. So I've already covered a couple of questions here and um, uh, try and get through as many of these as we can in the remaining time that we have available. And I'm uh, going to start off with a question from Abdulaziz GM. Not quite sure what the GM is. <laughs> General Motors. Games Master. Games Master, Gold Master. We could be here all day. <laughs> But his question is this, does the PS5 shortage indicate a long PS3 era console generation? Yeah, I, I actually think it's going to be pretty comparable to the last generation. I do think we're going to probably see a mid-generation refresh again. Um, I mean, obviously, we don't know anything about this yet, but just based on the strategy Microsoft especially has been doing with their Xbox platform, it makes a lot of sense, I think, to continue that sort of model forward. Um um, but, you know, I think ever since the PS3 era, that's just kind of the new expectation. It takes games now take longer to develop. The budgets are larger. Um, I think it will probably last a similar amount of time. And in fact, we could argue that the current, the last generation isn't really over yet. Right. Like many new games are still shipping across generations. So, yeah. Yeah. That's the question for me. I mean, there there are two things here for me. First of all. Uh, the question is tying the concept of uh, the current semiconductor crisis to the concept of extending the console generation. Um, I think the demand is there. And, uh, you know, as soon as they can get the consoles out there, you know, that's what's going to happen. I think the, the danger, if you can call it that, is that it's going to extend cross-gen uh, simply because it's not financially viable to go next-gen only. That's the That's the only sort of concern I have there. In terms of um, uh, the concept of how long this generation is going to be, it's a tricky one because, uh, well, John, you were with me at Microsoft uh, when we talked about, uh, you know, they were talking about the fact that it's getting really difficult to actually make proper generational leaps, that the uh, uh, reductions in process sizes are not financially viable for producing much more powerful machines. So it probably is within their interests to extend the generation if they can, simply because, you know, we want to see a proper generational leap. I think that's probably the takeaway that I've got basically from this generation is that um, it's, it's just really tricky. You know, I'm not sure Microsoft's idea of simply continuing um, and not producing next generation exclusives actually paid off for them. Uh, I think it actually made PlayStation 5 more desirable because there were actually next-generation experiences there that tapped into the core strengths of the architecture, even in the face of the fact that um, console uh, availability was limited. Because they cha- they kind of changed that strategy, right? That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the concept has changed seemingly because a lot more of the first-party titles are now going to be cross-gen. And this is where I think the point about shortages might come into play. Uh, shortages in the general state of things right now 
I could see this decision being made recently specifically due to this. Um, and I can cut, you know, I don't like it, but I understand it. And, you know, if people can't get these machines and also, you know, with the other situations going on, not everybody can afford these machines and they still want to. So I've kind of revised my stance on this a little bit. While I do prefer things to shift to the next generation, uh, I, I can feel, I feel for the people that maybe want to experience these games, but just don't have the means to do so. So I, I can see why it's changed, but, um, it's still ultimately disappointing for me. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of taken with your idea of the mid-generation refresh. Um, the question is why you would do it. You've got to offer something that's that's genuinely, you know, genuinely game-changing because, you know, last time we had the arrival of 4K TVs, don't think anyone cares about 8K. I don't think you need that anymore because, um, necessarily, because you, you look at what they're doing with, like, series s and and everything which is pretty low powered but still supporting the newer games um i think when they say it's difficult to make a next generation machine these days uh that that also says to me that well but it's not it's less difficult to make an iterative machine right and i think you know similar to phones they they kind of in that model now just with much less frequency of course uh you know we're looking at these new machines, right? And we're getting a lot more 60 frames per second, but stuff like hitting native 4k is pretty rare. Still, uh, 8k is pretty much off the table, right? I mean, I can see them just basically like pushing that stuff out saying, you know, this is like the next series console, right? Uh, this is the next in the series of console with the latest hardware, uh, it's pushing higher resolutions and all this kind of stuff in your games and i mean they already set up the whole ecosystem to allow for this stuff so it would be just like a very smooth simple transition akin to buying a new video card if anything else you know what i mean yeah i think um the other thing to bear in mind is that um we don't you know microsoft were talking about how difficult it would be to create a next generation console or even cost reduce the current one but um the bottom line is that you know we're seeing with uh, machine learning, with, with DLSS, that you don't actually need to double your GPU to produce double the frame rate or, or you know, double the resolution. You can actually use machine learning and influencing to radically improve image quality uh, with a relatively small boost to die area, increased die area. So, you know, I think ML is basically going to be, you know, as you, as, you know, it's not just us saying it, it was in your Doom Eternal interview um, where, you know, applications of machine learning are going to be really interesting. And that could be the basis for a next generation console that doesn't necessarily have to have a gigantic chip within it. That's the key to making stuff like 8K feasible. I don't think 8K is ultimately that important, to be honest. But if you want to put that on the box, using machine learning to kind of get there is probably the best way forward and the most realistic use of GPU power out there. So... Yeah, but I, I I just don't see any sort of big game changer like there was with 4K and HDR and all that coming anytime soon. I feel like displays have kind of settled into perfecting what we have. 8K itself isn't that interesting or that desirable right now. Um, so I don't know. 
I guess another another thing that's interesting though is um, there is still the next generation PSVR to be revealed. We know that that exists. They've already announced that, and I don't think VR is a big deal anymore necessarily, but it's still it's it's cool and it still has enough of an audience. So I'll be curious to see what that means for that platform. I don't know. There's just a lot of stuff to think about with this. Let's move on to the next question, and it's actually quite a simple one. So this one is from Matthew Santa Maria, and he says, while I'd imagine they are low, if not non-existent, what are the chances of other back-compat PS4 titles getting 120 frames per second support? Um, well, we've seen that with Call of Duty Warzone, which just sort of came out of nowhere with, um, you know, a, you effectively doubled frame rate over the 60 FPS version. Resolution was still a bit low, but, you know, it worked as a 120 frames per second experience. Um, I'd say that if it's possible on Warzone, it should be possible on other titles like Rocket League and whatnot. You know, whether they actually get implemented is another thing entirely. But the technical route forward is now there where it wasn't before. So I wouldn't say that the chances are low to non-existent. I would say it's whether the developer wants to put the time and effort in. Rich, I'm wondering, do do we know what like? How, how this impacts the development side. Like, is this something that Sony implemented in the SDK that, that we know where it's like not that much work from the developer or is this like special engineering that they did specifically for this game? That's what I'm wondering. Cause I feel like that would determine whether this would be common or not. Yeah, it's unknown, but my bet would be that it is an SDK thing because the way the, eight, uh, the 120 Hertz support works is kind of quite similar to the way it works on PlayStation 5 titles anyway. So um, it would make sense that it's plumbed in at the system level. The other thing is that if if you turn off 120 hertz support on the front end menus, then it doesn't activate within Warzone. So um, uh, again, it does suggest that it is tied in at the system level. So that would kind of suggest that it is potentially viable, that titles like Pocket League and whatnot could get 120 frames per second support. But it is just, we just don't know how difficult or easy it is to do. We're talking about this stuff, but there's kind of a finite number of games where I think we'll see any further improvements, right? Because now we're moving to the new era where everything new being released is pretty much just going to have native versions for the new consoles, right? So it's a lot less important to worry about what the older games can do. So um, and something like Warzone makes sense because a lot of people are still playing that, right? So yeah, of course, you want to make sure uh next gen console owners have the best experience but there's so many other games where you have to wonder is it worth their time to actually do anything for it at this point i think with warzone it's such a, an exceptional sort of almost phenomenon of a game right now that they they almost uh were urged to do it within the team to make an exception uh there are a couple of others like that where, you know kind of um games which also feel a bit like a service as much as a sort of a uh, you know, like Rocket League, it's it's kind of ongoing. People still play it. People still enjoy it. That's an interesting one. Uh, but in general, I feel like a lot of the live service games that are popular are just getting native updates, right? Right. Yeah. So there is this. Yeah. This is kind of like the half step where it's still a PS4 game, but they're enabling this new feature. And I just don't think that there's that many games where developers have any reason to go back and do this. Like it's, a, it's just extra resource, isn't it? Just to go back. I mean, they, you can't see Activision going back to all the Call of Duty games that came out on PS4. Fundamentally, the thing is, so 
Xbox has FPS boost with this feature. That is a f- something Microsoft themselves is pushing as a value add, right? They obviously check with the developers and such on this, but the developers themselves are not doing the heavy lifting. So it's a lot easier for them to say, yeah, let's do this. It's fine. Uh, versus like, here's the new SDK. Why don't you go implement this in your game? That's a much bigger ask. And I think most publishers will probably be like, eh, no, thanks. We're good. I mean, we're either being horrendously ignorant or it is the fact that <laughs> Rocket League is the only title that really springs to mind as... It, you know, some... <laughs> it's basically the old... I mean, are there any other last-gen... FIFA? There's, there's the, the Star Wars game that got 120 yeah. hertz yeah. on uh, Xbox. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, And uh, Mass Effect uh, had it, uh, but it was a bit wobbly. See... That, oh yeah, that wasn't feasible. That only works yeah. on Xbox yeah, was... because of VRR. If you play it exactly, without it, that's it's the horrible. other thing. So mm-hmm. you wouldn't want that on the PS5 without VRR. So yeah, yeah, they go hand in hand. They yeah. really do. It's a tricky question. So Absolutely. I don't know, man. It's it's a weird one, but that's enough. Let's move on to the next question here. That's from Jonas Larson Taggy Zade, and I do apologize. I'm so sorry if I got that pronunciation wrong. Uh, any more plans for Switch overclocking videos using the OG Switch and or a hardware modded Mariko Switch? Um, this is a really good question because um, especially in light of the Switch OLED being revealed and it's basically got the same performance as the Switch from 2017 when it launched. There was no Switch Pro as far as we're aware. So you've done a bit of uh, work with overclocking the Switch, Tom. Uh, do you think there's actually much more mileage in doing any more of these videos? I mean, it looks like we're buckling in, aren't we? <laughs> For a little longer at least uh, with the, the current um, SOC. And I'm kind of, well, all right. I mean, we did it with a couple. The Witcher 3? My memory's failing me on this. You did The Witcher 3. And um, yeah, you did a bunch of them. Um, 60 fps mods are actually a thing for the switch yeah yes that's right and it's a, it's a it's actually quite um impressive how many of those games are kind of feasible because we had the option to also drop resolutions to their portable state while running in docked stuff like that to kind of help it along to get to 60 fps and it's surprising how many of them actually can do a lot better with that hardware than uh, first meets the eye so yeah, maybe another one, maybe another round with uh, you know the last year's worth of titles. We've had a like Monster Hunter. I've got sort of conflicting views on this because I do like doing it as an academic exercise, and it, the fact is that the Switch does underclock Nvidia's original design, so there is always the sense that that you know, especially for docked mode, there's. Um, you know, there's there's more left in the tank that developers don't have access to. And especially on the CPU side, that's kind of problematic for me because the CPU is so dramatically underclocked. Um, it, it kind of gets a bit trickier when you're talking about portable because then overclocking has a huge implication on battery life. You know, it's to the point where I think they actually limit the overclocking potential um, that the actual, you know, custom firmware developers limited the overclocking levels on portable mode because the battery simply can't handle it. And that made it's, sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, they only did it for the to keep it in sync with portable play. Um, 
Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, but it is like, you know, like you said in our Switch OLED Direct, John, we know this is the kind of thing that's kind of a bit galling about the whole situation is that we know that the Switch SoC can do a lot more. A lot of headroom. A lot of headroom left in it, especially the Marico model with a 16 nanometer chip, which, you know, the GPU can go up to like 1.267 gigahertz and it's limited to 768 megahertz in docked. And, you know, you can add 75% clock to the CPU. It's ginormous. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's kind of the appeal of these overclocking videos is that, you know, you know that the hardware can do it. There are practical limitations as to why they didn't do it. It's always it's, battery. Always. Yeah, and heat dissipation. And heat dissipation. But, it, but you know, it's, it is just sort of a bit disappointing that we aren't getting the full spec. Makes me think of playing around. I, I did a lot of toying with the Vita overclocking as well. And in that case, man, overclocking that thing all the way and cranking up the resolution on some games. Like uh, Need for Speed Most Wanted. I actually put that up to native resolution and overclocked the Vita. And it looks dramatically better. But then the battery life was like 45 minutes. <laughs> so <laughs> it absolutely decimates that thing. <laughs> But it's cool. And, uh, yeah, it's not great. While we're uh, while we're talking about the Vita, let's have a shout out for our Need for Speed PlayStation Three <laughs> versus <laughs> Vita comparison video, which uh, I knocked up in about two hours several years ago, and it's now at like one point nine million views, and, and we have no idea as to you know it's not a particularly good video. I suppose there's a novelty to it because uh, at the time it was impossible to capture the the Vita, so that you know, but it. <laughs> It's just kind of bizarre. I think it's like um, some some people were telling me that that video for some reason keeps showing up in their like recommended feed. So somehow the Google algorithm just like maybe there's a huge Vita fan at Google or like their machine learning has just learned to love the Vita too much. And <laughs> like all of us, like all of us but- <laughs> gone too soon. <laughs> um a quick question here from Nolan Matthew Lawrence, and it may well indicate why we haven't had an overclock switch. Oh, yeah. Uh, my, <laughs> my original <laughs> launch switch overheats when playing games docked. It always has. Uh, do you think the Dyshrink switch we got a couple of years ago or the new OLED switch will run cooler? Yes. I mostly play docked, and so the screen isn't as important as good docked performance. Um Yes, uh, you sort of spoiled my response there, John. But yes, Sorry. it will run better. It's <laughs> a it's a sixteen nanometer FinFET chip, um, and that's up against a twenty nanometer original. It's actually even more underclocked, uh, relatively speaking, compared to its uh, capabilities. So yes, it will hopefully not overheat. And to be honest, your original launch switch shouldn't be overheating. What I was going to say, I still use my launch one regularly uh it does not overheat so if your switch is actually overheating and docked then there's a there has always been a problem with it uh because that, it's, it's not that's not it? correct behavior at all uh it does get warm but i'd be curious to know what that means though when he says it's overheating does that mean he's actually like seeing a, an actual problem like artifacts the game crashing does it mean you know it doesn't get very loud does no, it no it's pretty quiet it does get warm yeah. but it, it doesn't seem like yeah. it overheats necessarily because it's within um the limits of what it can support so i don't know that's weird though but if you're having overheating problems with that then yeah obviously the newer one should be much better in that regard 
the uh, OLED screen won't do uh, do much for it, I imagine. <laughs> it's definitely the, the die shrink that you're looking for there. Yeah, he's talking about Dot's performance there. And um, so obviously the screen is irrelevant. But, you know, to be honest, any of the switches uh, with the Marico chip will do the job there. So, you know, if you don't need the OLED uh, screen, then a standard switch will do the job just fine. He could just buy the dock with LAN port, which has more venting. <laughs> I still think it, it would still overheat. I, I don't think it, I don't think it would change anything. <laughs> no. Okay, let's move on to the next question. Um, this one is from Thomas Vergler. Would you be interested in digging into some of the older computer titles for DF Retro? Many of us in Europe grew up on a computer diet rather than a console diet, and comparisons between different home computers and consoles, where appropriate, could be interesting. Titles like Stunt Car Racer, Slam Tilt, and Elite could be interesting to hear about. And you could even dig into true masterpieces like Alfred Chicken. What say ye, gentlemen? <laughs> it's gone back to Elizabethan times. What say ye, gentlemen of refined taste? This is your ballpark, really. Um. So we try to integrate these older computers when they come up in comparisons, but as far as like actual features on them, uh, we thought about this. It's a tricky one though for me because you know most of what I choose on DF Retro is stuff that that. I've had a lot of experience with and a lot of interest in and my knowledge on I've gained a lot of knowledge on the Amiga, but other home older micros from that era, um, still relatively limited in, um, and I'd be curious, to, I, I need to check with Audi about this as well. Cause he had more experience with these older computers, but I'm not sure he loves them all. I mean, he was brave enough to go up on stage with us in London, no less, and say that the ZX Spectrum sucks. And I don't know how uh, he made it out of there alive, to be honest. <laughs> there was that guy in the audience who was just sitting there shaking his head. He, he was not happy. <laughs> yeah. I'm so sorry. I mean, you know, I had a Spectrum, <laughs> and I, sorry, I agree. It was, you know, we went to this computer club, uh, and um, I was just looking at envy at the guys who had the Commodore 64. And, in awe. Um, not so much in awe, cause, but yeah, you because know, I knew what it was all about. But you know, the games, the hardware accelerated aspects of the Commodore sixty four were just crucial to to the success of that system. But you know, I do think that it's um, you know necessity is the mother of invention, and there was a ton of fantastic stuff on the Spectrum simply by virtue of the limitations that they had to do there. I've gained an appreciation for the Spectrum in recent years, uh, seeing some of the top tier examples of what was done on there, and also some of the recent homebrew stuff. There was actually this racing sort of action, Chase HQ looking racing game shown recently um, running on the Spectrum, and it looked unbelievable for the system. And that kind of stuff is genuinely fascinating. So I guess I can see the appeal of a system like that in that, you know, you're developers are dealing with a very limited piece of hardware and doing some truly amazing things that require a lot of creativity and out of the box thinking, I think, and that stuff I do appreciate. Um, so yeah, we'll have to see about that, but I guess if we ever do cover the spectrum, I'll probably have to call up Ian Higton or something to get him in there to talk about it since he's the biggest spectrum fan I know. So, so Tom, this is kind of like not really your ballpark, is it? Cause the, that particular home computer era, was it kind of before you got into games? Because I do remember making a joke about BASIC and 
you didn't get it. And I felt quite... Oh, <laughs> this is when we just started in the uh, oh, the, the uh, office doing um, YouTube uh, sort of stuff to camera, wasn't it? And uh, yeah, it was... So I think you, wh- where did you died inside when I said, yeah. uh, what's, what's basic? What's basic? That's, that, was, that was a, you know... <gasps> did I, you say I that, Tom? quite old. Oh, man, I feel old. I, I think, also feel old. You know what? I think... Uh, <laughs> I think we did use it at primary school, like uh, a little bit, uh, but that was that was it. Yeah, primary school. Well, you know, to be fair, I used it. Actually, no, I probably didn't use it at primary school, secondary. Fed, fed. So, where did you actually start with gaming then? Me, uh, the oldest uh, uh, console I think our family had was a BBC. Uh, oh, you had a BBC Micro. Uh, yeah, under the TV, uh, and my dad was uh, is a programmer, so. Wow, you guys were living the high life then, as I understand it. The BBC Micro was pretty posh. Well, we had Elite, I believe, and a few others. But yeah, it was, a, it was yeah, like I got to learn how to make a color appear on the screen. And that was, that was the extent of my coding for that, <laughs> that thing. But yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting. But I think I, I really kicked off with PC gaming and uh, yeah, then the Mega Drive were kind of the, the big two for me. Um, yeah. Well, let's round this off with a final question from uh, somebody who's posted with the hacker alias Ice More Butts. All uh, right. Say no more. Of course. His question, John and Audie. Audie's not here. John, ever since your PlayStation video, I've been craving more certain comparisons. So I hope to see more. He's craving them, John. Will Sega... <laughs> Will Sega ever tap the vast and excellent Saturn library, or is it doomed to remain the best system almost nobody in the West plays? I don't know about that. Also, please talk about the Saturn more. <laughs> wait, 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 what do you mean you don't know about that? <laughs> I don't. I, the concept that almost nobody in the West That's played true. Saturn. A lot of people played yeah, it, actually. It's a bit, I mean, I based my career on Saturn at that point. Yeah, so. that's true. Sega and the Saturn is a weird thing. I've got I've had the impression for years that Sega Saturn was almost like a dirty word inside certain Sega offices. But in recent years, um I've seen more and more people join Sega that actually do have a fondness for the Saturn. And I've been seeing sort of hints that it's perhaps no longer viewed in such a negative light among more employees now uh i guess it just i don't know i i'm not hopeless that it'll happen but it it feels like we might have a chance at seeing more stuff from that era appear but it's not even just saturn really like we've talked about this before but they've also been kind of every time sega's like let's bring stuff back they always like well we're gonna go back to the mega drive again and then they get just about up to the mid 90s and then it stops uh, every freaking time. So we're still waiting on Sega Model 2 and Model 3 stuff in larger. I mean, we've seen a couple things, especially during the PS3 era. But Model 3, though, is pretty much like not represented in official releases in general. Uh, so you get that and Saturn that feel like they've been swept under the rug. So I don't know. It's a weird one. Here's the thing. I'm kind of in two minds about this particular question. First of all... Um, if we did more Saturn comparisons, uh, I suspect that it wouldn't go so well for the Saturn if it's up against the PlayStation in most cases. It's got to be um, for 2D games mainly. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really where it sort of hit, hit its stride. 
But seeing more of the Saturn, absolutely, simply because the overall quality of the library is simply phenomenal. And what I really like especially about it is that it's not about the games that came out on the PlayStation, really. It's not about the comparisons. It's about the fact that for this tremendous time in the mid-90s, you had two systems out there that were pretty much doing entirely different things, uh, catering to entirely entirely different audiences. You know, I'd say three, three systems, really, if you well, count exactly, 64 yeah. in there. They were all doing very different things. Yeah, and... Um, that was kind of like a golden age of gaming, in my opinion, where you could have um, three different systems doing three different things. You didn't have like the homogenization of game development as we've got now. And, you know, that's kind of something that I think is a bit lacking. I mean, maybe with the Switch, to a certain extent, there's there's experiences there that you can't have on the other systems. Um, but, you know, that was kind of the golden age uh, for me. And it's something that's kind of gradually sort of diminished over the years but that was kind of the highlight it was you know it was a, a fork in the way that games were being made the, the, the you know the roots going forward so yeah i'd like to see more saturn um and just generally and please talk about the saturn more well okay so we can, we can definitely oblige the saturn was just this uh is incredible i mean it, it's one of those machines that as a playstation uh, owner growing up was uh, a bit of a mystery to me and a lot of people, I'm sure, like myself, want to kind of revisit later uh, now that they have, you know, um, the ability to pick up these games and check them out. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's something I've been very keen to do. I was very much into the Saturn back in the day, so um, I still am. I get around 200 games for it now. So uh, the problem is, though, so if you for people that want to get into Saturn, it is a little bit tough. You kind of want to look at, like, ODE options because... I feel like it's too late to start collecting a lot of Saturn stuff. I mean, some of the cheaper Japanese stuff you can still get, but Saturn game prices are just stupid right now. Yeah, that's, and it's a Hands shame. Of Dragoon Saga. Well, that, that's like uh, the super high end, but just yeah. But even stuff like Street Fighter Alpha Three, you know, uh, well, again, with that, a four megabyte car that came out really just kind of like, came out really late. But you know, a lot of the stuff just in the U.S., like you think uh, Mega Man X Four, for instance, that goes for hundreds on Saturn playstation version is nowhere near that and you see this a lot with a lot of these 2d games and stuff that that were never that expensive really and then they've just kind of shot up a lot in the last 10 years most of my gets this uh lately come from finding like, u.s saturn games at weird german stores uh, i found some shrink wrapped saturn u.s games at a local store here in fact from the u.s whoa so, really yeah it's you could I think, uh, get Get it graded and sell it for $1.5 million. I don't think so. I, I actually think realistically the reason they're around here is because there's the military base that's not too far from here, the U.S. military base. And back in the day, they used to have American game consoles and games sold there, right, on base. And I feel like a lot of that stuff just ended up in warehouses and some of these stores like bought up like job lots, basically. Uh, and so they ended up with a bunch of like new old stock of things. I mean, so, I mean, there's like new old stock of 3DO games, Saturn games, and other stuff, all NTSCU. So it's it's bizarre. That's where you want to be. And it's usually sold NTSCU. for cheap here too, because most people can't run the US games. So yeah, good deals. Well, I'm going to draw this direct to an end now with a bit of good news, because I have literally 
just received an email. Well, when I say literally, I'm talking about actually about 25 minutes ago. But I've just looked at it and uh, it's from Capcom. Ah. <gasps> yeah, hush the right. please. Um, hey, Richard, good morning. A quick follow up. The team are working on a patch to address PC performance issues. Uh, presumably talking about Resident Evil Village here. It should be available soon and we'll have details shortly. Great. That's excellent oh, news. Yes. Well, fingers crossed that resolves everything. And, um, you know, I won't feel so uh, sort of conflicted about that particular piece of content. But, you know, bottom line is that if we do get the game running as it should, and you don't need to resort to piracy or indeed uh, user hacks and mods to get it going as it should be, uh, that's good news. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I've just said in, his, in my reply. <laughs> team. that's great news um, okay right well let's round this up thanks so much for joining me on this one uh, uh, Tom anytime and uh, John thanks again of course you're probably all talked out after that epic but uh... a little bit yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay but as usual please do uh, like subscribe and share if you enjoyed the content ring the bell for instant instant notifications whenever Digital Foundry posts new content and yeah, we've talked about the DF supporter program. It's crucial to what we do. Please consider it. Uh, but that's all from us for now. Thanks for watching. <laughs>